When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Hello, this is Football Social, not quite daily, a regular hit of Premier League news and opinion that, as we're out of season, isn't quite every day at the moment, but it is regular enough to keep you in the loop with everything that's going on in the English top flight right now. I'm Jim Salverson, and today on the podcast, Niall McCorn, who's back from holiday from Belgium, full of quack, Niall? <laughs> I actually didn't have a quack, but I am... Do you not have a quack? I didn't in the end. They've got the coolest beer glass, though, I think I've ever seen. I don't know if you've seen the quack beer glass, Jim. It looks like something made from a like a lab experiment. It doesn't It doesn't have a base, so you can't stand the glass up. It's almost like a small yard of ale. Wow. You have to put it in like this wooden oh, I know exactly kind what of you cradle. To, to, you have to put it on a stand when you don't want to drink it. It's, it's really weird. I didn't have one of those, but I am about 94% Belgian beer at this point. So <laughs> I'm quite glad that, uh, <laughs> that I'm back in the UK, I think. Lovely stuff. We've got Steve McNaughton on the podcast as well. How are you doing, Steve? Sound cheer me, you. It's good Very to be back good. on. Very good, thanks. So today, well, it's been an interesting weekend for Manchester United's fans as they heard from the man in the top job, Richard Arnold. Not in a shareholder meeting, not in a big press conference, but in a pub. The Reds' chief executive meant angry fans in a boozer to discuss the club in a private meeting, which ended up being not so private after all. The conversation was recorded and then secretly stuck up on social media and some really interesting comments from the man in the top job, which we'll be talking about shortly on today's podcast. Also, the transfer window is hotting up just as the mercury in the thermometer creeps up too. Some done deals to talk about today with new faces arriving at Liverpool and West Ham, plus some other tasty morsels of transfer gossip to feast on, including the future of Raheem Sterling. Plus, at the end of today's podcast, we're going to be hearing from Neil from the Love of Paul McGrath podcast, an Aston Villa podcast that you can find now on the Sports Social Podcast Network. Niall caught up with him to chat transfers and Steven Gerrard and hopes for next season. That's a little bit later. But first, let's get stuck in because there is never a dull week at Manchester United. Ten Hag might have been fancying a quiet start to his reign at the club, but he's already had Paul Pogba's noisy exit from Manchester United last week. And this week, it is all about the actions of the club's CEO. And that's what's making the headlines. So as I said, Richard Arnold met some fans in a pub in an attempt to head off a fan protest about the running of Manchester United. And there is a video doing the rounds online now with some really interesting comments within it. Let's start off with the video itself as a whole, Nile, because I'm imagining, given the way the Glazers and the club deal with fans to date, this isn't a meeting that is going to have been sanctioned by the people at the very top of the football club. No, I can't imagine that the owners of United said to the chief exec to go and meet some fans in a boozer. But I think we should preface this entire conversation with the fact that there was allegedly set to be a supporter protest at Richard Arnold's house. 
So I think this is why Richard Arnold met these fans in, in the pub. And we saw that with Ed Woodward before, didn't we? We saw Ed Woodward's house being egged in a previous fan protest, which is never acceptable. We should make that clear. Right. And I think that that is the reason why Richard Arnold decided to get in touch with these supporters and say, I'll meet you down the pub and I'll talk to you. Please don't come and attack my house and attack my family, etc., etc." I think attack's probably the wrong word, but you know where I'm coming from. So I think that was important hmm. to, to preface that, first of all. Um, to go back to your original point, no, I don't think this is something that the owners would have sanctioned, but I actually think it's... Um, the, the right approach from, from Richard Arnold and whether he knew it was going to be filmed or not is another question. But I certainly think that there isn't enough transparency in football and that doesn't just extend to Manchester United. I think that extends right across the pyramid. There's a lot of things that are kept in-house and behind closed doors. I understand that it is a business football. So there are there are things that are commercially sensitive that need to be sort of kept hush-hush. But I think when it comes to the running of a football club, which is an institution like Manchester United and a lot of football clubs in this country, if not all of them, are entirely dependent on the loyalty and the passion of the supporters. And United mm -hmm. is no different. And I think that it's important that there is more transparency. So, you know, even though it was kind of covertly filmed under the table of the pub and Richard Arnold seemingly didn't know anything about the fact that there was a camera there um, recording every last word that he said, I certainly think that there in that chat, he showed an element of transparency, which we haven't often seen. And certainly we didn't see from his predecessor, Ed Woodward, who's had no end of stick and flack. And you can understand why in some cases with the way things have gone at Manchester United. So I think it's interesting what Richard Arnold said. I don't think this is something you'll be seeing regularly, um, meetings with chief executives and fans in pubs. But it, what it might do is it might spark a, a more transparent method of communicating with supporters in the future, whether that be of Manchester United or of any other club so I actually think it was quite refreshing even though it was done in a rather backwards way. Do you agree that there's positives to take from this Steve because we don't see this kind of communication between the people that run a football club and the fans very often it's not maybe done in the most professional way you wouldn't expect some guys to meet outside a boozer and talk over the future of the football club but if you take your club Liverpool for example yep. there's a team who's the upper echelons of that club are very reluctant very hesitant to actually yep. meet and talk with fans. I think it's I think it's a positive step. Like like Niall said, um, I think it's unfortunate that he's been filmed under the table. I think he's gone there to show uh, a disgruntled bunch of fans that he is human mm -hmm. and that he has a job and a half to do as well. It's it's a huge task he's he's got on his hands to to fix the club with with you know he's got a new manager in there who it hasn't had the greatest of starts off the pitch in terms of, you know, transfer targets and things that have happened and players leaving, you know, like like we said. And I think that it's just, I think it's a fair play to him for doing it because, like you said, fans have been taking it, not just Man United fans, fans of other clubs as well, have been taking it a bit too far in recent times. And I think going to someone's house and putting him in that situation was unacceptable. He's gone mm. in the pub and, and what they're not kind of, you know, reporting a great deal on is that he, he went in, he bought everyone a drink and they talked about a lot of stuff and, and he's been transparent. He said the season was a nightmare, well, an effing nightmare. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're trying to bring Frankie de Jong in. That is looking like it's an uphill task after the player said he, he didn't want to move at a press conference last week. Um, and I just think for, for a play to him, uh, it is... It is a fallen giant of a football club, and it is on its knees, and the, the, there's no denying that. And it's a, you know, they are trying to rebuild that football club, and that, but with any any rebuild, there's going to be pain points with it, and there's going to be a lot of looking in the mirror, and there's going to be a lot of self reflection. And I think that that's the stage that Man United are at now, and the fans probably need to try and get behind it a bit more. I know it's difficult, but. You know, it's we've had the protests against the Glazers. They're going nowhere. They're going absolutely nowhere. No. And I think um, there's got to be better dialogue between the club and the fans. And they said on the, you know, when they let everyone down with the Super League and everything, we're going to listen to the fans more. I'm led to believe that's not happening. No, at the minute, and that is poor. And I think that I only look at my club as an example. Where since that they've put, you know, um, someone from. Spirit of Shankly on the board at the club and and, and a non you know a non advisory role and executive oh, it role. It feels tokenistic across the board. It, For every aspect of football, it feels it, tokenistic. I agree. The fans at the moment, I, but I think that that as tokenistic as it is, they've, they've actually said this is our new charter and we've got these people on the board and sure. stuff like that to come in and contribute. So they have done something uh, about it, and I think United have got a 
get that dialogue going a bit more. Um, it's a it's a toxic situation, and and there's a new manager in there who's going to try and rebuild a squad capable of competing because they're just falling away. Last season was horrendous, and I think it's got to start somewhere. And 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 the guy going into the pub buying everyone a drink and saying, "Listen, we know what's going on, and we know it's how bad it is." Let's just have an open discussion and and try and take steps to sort it out. So, hopefully, some good will come out of it. But I wouldn't give the I wouldn't give the guy too much stick mm. for it. Don't you Don't you think, lads, that the fact that this is kind of made news is obviously more about what he said? And you know, we're talking here about oh, he's meeting fans in a pub. You know, we we always talk about how football belongs to the fans and it's the working class game and all of that. Well, I mean, the majority of chats that you see about football take place in the pub. You know, football clubs were formed in pubs up and down the country in the late 1800s. And, you know, it's just funny how we've almost come full circle to the point where, or 180 to the point where, oh, why is the chief executive meeting fans in a pub and not in a boardroom with a shiny suit on? I, I think it's quite refreshing because it, that is what most normal football fans do. You know, they go to a, a pub or, you know, they have a, a Coke or a beer or whatever they have in before the game and, then they go off to support their team. They might have a, a burger on the way, a pie at half time. You know, this is what football supporters do. And we always complain that ownerships and board members are detached from the supporters. And this shows, like Steve was saying, a little bit more connectivity to to, to those at the top level who are running Manchester United. So I, th- I think that that is only a refreshing thing. I just thought it was a really interesting comparison to draw, to be honest. There, mm. There's a sports business podcast called Unofficial Partner that you may or may not be aware of but the guys that run that a guy called Richard and a guy called Sean they've got a huge experience working in sport and they talk to a lot of people and they say the most interesting conversations in sport always happen either in a bar or having a coffee after an event they never happen in the public facing things mm. and I think that is the truth of the matter and that's kind of what we're getting a glimpse at here it's getting down to brass tacks isn't yeah, it yeah and, and fans don't have access to that that's the difference it's not to say those conversations aren't going on that those conversations behind the scenes over a pint aren't happening in football that's where deals sure. are done yeah. it's just we don't see that very often and here we're getting a glimpse into that and I thought what was interesting now was the tone of the meeting that Richard Arnold had because he almost seemed a little bit apologetic and it was definitely an attempt to placate angry fans. Yeah. I mean, that was his job, going there so his house didn't get egged or whatever it is. But at the same time, as Steve said, he described the situation that Manchester United are in as a nightmare. Said they burnt through millions in transfers, billions in transfers yeah. in terms of the money they'd spent on players. Did you think he was saying the right things? Because this wasn't a public statement. He had no idea he was being recorded. But it felt like the things he was saying, the things that fans in general wanted to hear. I think he did say the right things. Yeah. I think, you know, in any situation, in any adversity, you've you've got to strip it down to its most basic point and, and you've got to go, this is the situation that we're in. And, you know, United are very much in that situation where they need to draw a line under the sand and they're trying to do that. They've got a very good manager who's come in, who's done very well at Ajax and has got good relationships with his players. He's an absolute control freak by all accounts, so he's going to be across everything. So... When you look at that and you've got a manager in as, as obsessed as that is, um, he is, that's only a good thing. And I, But mm. you've got to, you can't just paper over the cracks. You've got to go, this is the reality that we're in. We've spent over a billion pounds on, on transfers. We had a goal difference of zero last season. You know, we finished on 58 points or whatever it was. Was it 58 points? Something like that, wasn't it? Um, it wasn't... Um, it might have been a bit higher. I don't know. It was a long time ago. Off the pace. <laughs> Off the pace, yeah. And um, I, I applaud it. And, you know, and to move forward, they have got to remove all them layers and they've got to go, this is our reality. This is the sh** we're in. Mm-hmm. And let's all, as a collective, move forward. But you've got this disconnect at United where you've, you're going to have these constant protests against the Glazers and the way that they manage the club and how they leverage the club. Yeah, and you've got a CEO and a new manager trying to kind of get everyone in harmony again. So it, I don't know what the formula is. I don't know how it's going to work. Mm. I suppose is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Steve was saying the, the Glazers are there to stay, and I think that is probably the case. And a lot of the headlines from this conversation, Niall, came from the £200 million transfer budget that's available to bring in new players. It came from the transfers of players that might be coming in, etc. But I thought one of the most interesting parts of it was his comments on bigger plans for the football club. So more long-term things like 
revamping Manchester United Stadium, which is in dire need of some remedial work, looking at the training ground and upgrading the facilities there. And he was saying, if the club want to do that, that's not going to come from the Glazers. That needs to be outside investment. I thought that was fascinating. Do you think that's something that will happen at Manchester United? Do you think we'll likely to see another stakeholder coming into that football club? Or is that Richard Arnold going, look, we know this needs to happen, but it's not going to happen because of the model we have in place? Uh, My personal opinion is probably somewhere in between, to be honest, Jim. I think you will see investment in the training facilities. I think you will see investment in Old Trafford. I don't think we'll see a new stadium. I think Manchester United will stay at Old Trafford. Uh, and renovate the ground, revamp the ground. I think that's probably what's more likely to happen. I think it's difficult to read too much into what Richard Arnold said in that respect. I mean, we've only seen snippets, a five-minute video of what was probably a much longer conversation. So I I think we need to be Mm. careful not to take anything out of context here. But what I will say is I was lucky enough, actually, I got to go to Carrington, United's training ground, last week. It's, It's a really good training facility. So... It, it frustrates They've me. They've got a to him, bit Steve. Yeah. He's, he's under the. He's, he's being controlled <laughs> no, by the it, big red. <laughs> it just winds me up a little bit that people say that it's not fit for purpose. That is just not true. It's still a very good training facility. It's just not as good as Liverpool's brand new st- uh, facility or Leicester's brand new facility or Manchester City's facility. And, you know, if you're looking at the clubs that Manchester United are traditionally competing with, it's Liverpool and Manchester City, really, the two biggest rivals that they want to be better than. And they don't have, you know, they've got better training facilities than Newcastle, probably better than West Ham and a lot of the other um, bigger clubs, you'd say. Uh, I don't know about Arsenal's facilities, but I mean, uh, for Carrington, for me, I mean, it does need some work. I I understand that it's, you know, kind of 15, 20 years old now and probably does need to be brought up to, to modern standards a little bit. But I wouldn't say it's not fit for purpose. So some TV pundits you hear talking about how Carrington's not fit for purpose. I wonder whether they've been there in the last 10, 15 years and seen anything because I was there the other day and actually thought the facilities are still pretty good. They are they are Premier League level facilities. For Old Trafford, I agree. I do think Old Trafford is is tired. It's dated in places. It does need work. We've seen videos in the past of leaks coming through the roof, of water pouring through. Um, we've seen the corporate facilities maybe aren't quite as, as up to standard as some of the other Premier League clubs. So I certainly think that there is grounds for that work needing to be done. And that's something that the club communicated to the supporters a few months ago, saying that work or planning work on a, a potential revamp of Old Trafford has taken place or is taking place. But the thing about the outside investment I thought was was interesting, as you mentioned, Spurs came up in conversation during this sort of covertly recorded pub chat and um obviously Tottenham spent a billion pounds and they've mortgaged the stadium at a billion pounds so no no football owner is going to put a billion pounds into a new stadium it's just not going to happen doesn't matter how wealthy you are you just don't see that sort of investment in football maybe that will change in the future who knows but I think that's what Richard Arnold was saying he was saying that if you want a brand new stadium and you want to maintain because because it's like any business, right? So you've got a pool of money. You're going to spend 50% on players, 20% on the stadium, 10% on this, 5% on that. You know, if you want to spend all of this money on Old Trafford to get it up to standard or, or better than what it is now, money has to come from somewhere. And I guess at the moment, the priority for Manchester United and their fans is having a better football team. I think that that is the most important thing at the moment. I'm not a United supporter, but in my opinion, I think them improving on the pitch and not getting left behind, as Steve says, is more important than them painting Old Trafford with a new lick of paint at this moment in time. I think that you need to be stable on the pitch at the moment United aren't. They've got a new manager, they've got a transfer budget, possibly some new players coming in. We're not too sure how they'll look for the new Premier League season, which begins at the start of August. But I'm pretty sure supporters, if you ask them, option A, be better on the pitch next season, or option B, a few new um, concourses in Old Trafford and a new lick of paint what would you rather but you, you you know your performances stay the same I think they'd all answer about the on-pitch stuff so I think that that's important to to mention you know when you're talking about that sort of investment in in you know I mean some people will be listening to this thinking oh why can't they just do both I mean they probably could but businesses don't they just don't do that and sadly that's the way football is now that clubs are businesses it's the way it's gone and when everything's going right on the pitch the stuff that's happening off the pitch seems suddenly less significant much less important to fans which I think is probably a case in point would be at my club West Ham where we saw fan protests a couple of seasons ago nothing's really changed since those fan protests happened other than David Moyes has started to get players playing well 
that's really been the only difference and suddenly no one cares about the ownership anymore. <laughs> so we're a fickle bunch, aren't we, football yep. fans? <laughs> we are. We're going to talk about rebuilding for next season next. There is no Manchester United transfer news, but there's plenty of other clubs getting involved and a couple of done deals to discuss too. We'll do it next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. We're talking transfers now. Two done deals to discuss. There's also a few rumours doing the rounds, particularly with regards to the future of Raheem Sterling at Manchester City. Going to start at your club, Steve, which, I mean, I don't think it's a... Massive headline-grabbing transfer, but Liverpool have completed the signing of the 18-year-old Scottish right-back Calvin Ramsey. He's been playing for Aberdeen recently. You've got him on a five-year deal, 4.2 million quid, which isn't a whole load of cash for a promising young player. Now, apparently, he's not going to go out on loan. He's certainly going to spend pre-season with Liverpool. He's not one that's going to walk straight into the first team, though, is he? It's no. going to be a while before we see him making any kind of impact. Yeah, I think, you know, he's all I've seen is the same goal that Sky Sports keep, you know, playing <laughs> of him in, in all honesty. You know, it's weird, he, isn't it? Yeah. When, when, play, when teams sign defenders they always show the goals they score it's yeah. like that's the, that's the very minor part of their game you yeah. want to see the tackles you, you, want, to see, you want to see the whole, show me some whole great positional that, you know, play I mean, yeah so it's <laughs> like you know the Scottish yeah. youngster is it? Yeah, yeah he's coming in from the left <laughs> I mean it's great goal that Sky Sky keep playing but um, yeah I think he's you know he is very kind of well thought of um, you, you know Jürgen talked about his potential and the fact that they need to get you know, a couple more levels out of him. He will spend most of his time on the bench and playing in the mm. Carabao Cup early stages and, and FA Cup early stages. And I think that will will be good for his development because I think at Liverpool there is a, a host of young players that are not going out on loan that are getting that experience at Liverpool. I'm talking about Harvey Elliott, who, who before his injury was, was playing week in, week out. Um, you know, they've got Fabio Carvalho coming in, who's yeah. exceptional for Fulham, you know, the last couple of seasons. And, uh, you know, then you've got Trent, who's still unbelievably only 23. <laughs> you know, he feels like he's been around for years. And Curtis Jones is 21. And uh, Darwin Nunes is 22. So you, they're building this real cluster of of future stars that are at a really good level now. We're to work with them over the next couple of seasons. And when you've got these players coming out, like Jordan Henderson, for example, example is 32 now. Mm. You know, and even though Jordan Henderson is a, quite fantastic leader and he brings a lot on the pitch still you kind of think in two years time when the guy's 34 there's going to be a touch of the James Milner's about him isn't there you know what I mean does that mean you have to temper your expectations as a Liverpool fan as to where the club is do you think it's going to be a case of right it's time to rebuild to regenerate or do you think the way Jurgen Klopp's managing this is that it's almost a conveyor belt where you've yeah. got Mane and Salah and Henderson dropping off one end but yeah. these new guys kind of coming that's along exactly the next... it. Okay. that's exactly it and I think that you know, we 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 we've seen the evolution of this Liverpool team because you know Diogo Jota come in and and has been fantastic overall. Liverpool dropped off towards the end of last season. You know, Luis Diaz arguably the sign of the season. You know, and sorry, signing of the January window, um, coming in was in fantastic form, and now you're bringing in Darwin Nunes for sixty four million mm. plus add-ons, whatever it is, and you're seeing these players be replaced. And I think that you know Calvin Ramsey will provide good competition for Trent. 
Uh, Nico Williams, good professional, done really well at Fulham in the Championship last season, not quite at, at the level that, that they're looking for. And he spotted this Scottish kid and thought we like the look of him and we can get him relatively cheap and someone that, that he's got characteristics that Jurgen Klopp obviously likes and he wants both them positions covered because we you know, obviously we've got Costas Simicast supporting Andy Robertson and Costas is brilliant mm. and I, you know it's to the point where you you barely notice the difference in them and I, and I think that's what he's looking for for the right hand side because you know Liverpool are so threatening down that right hand side and it might come to a game like I think of the Champions League final where we were quite clearly the better side over 90 minutes, but we didn't really have a plan B because mm-hmm. Real Madrid were employing that low block. They wanted to just steal something, and they're very good at that, and that's exactly what they did. Against the runner play, Vinicius back post, that's, it's over. Um, and I think that you know one of them plans might be, in certain games, moving Trent further forward. It might be kind of um, you know going 4-2-3-1 next season for Liverpool with, with Nunes coming in. I think there's going to be a bit of a shift because... The difference in winning the league title was was a point. We drawn nine games last season. You know, we we lost less than City last season, but we still didn't win the league, and we finished on ninety two points. You know, mm. again in the nineties and not winning the league. And I think he's looking at them fine margins. And Calvin Ramsey will be a piece of that. And I think he, we need squad depth, and we had squad depth at, on occasion last season. It was really good because Liverpool were really motoring then. And I think. The value and the Liverpool model is getting these players in at reduced prices and not spending an astronomical amount of money on I mean, it. Don't get me wrong, Nunes is expensive. Sixty-four million quid plus add-ons could go up to what eighty-five, something like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, if it comes off, great, <laughs> you know. But uh, let's hope. Then if not... you get forty-five million for Mane, uh, yeah, like... forty-five million from from Bayern Munich for him. I'm not. I'm sure it's forty-five with the add-ons though. Right. Have you noticed that they've started tra- reporting transfer fees differently now as well? They're putting yeah. the add-ons into it, aren't they? Sometimes wages as well. Yeah, like, and it's it depends. Like... There's, no, there's no like level playing field. It depends what angle the newspaper wants to take on the story. It's like the Haaland deal reported. where they come out and said actually it's costing Man City four hundred eight million. You know, yeah. with his wages. Since when have we started reporting his wages <laughs> over the five years? The add-ons that included in it, image rights and stuff like that you know yeah. you've signed for 51 million quid that was that was the headline and you know everyone said oh 100 million euros for Darwin Nunes and that but yeah it's 100 million euros if Jurgen Klopp bloody you know wakes up on a Sunday morning and puts a pair of matching socks on <laughs> <laughs> and, and all, you know all that jazz but I think yeah it's, it is a mm. conveyor belt you know um, and I think that's what you've got to do I think Liverpool can't put four or five new faces in that 11 week in week out and expect the same um, I think you know we will start to see they want you Bellingham. Um, there's no doubt about that. They can't do the deal this summer. I've heard whispers that they're going to try and do a Naby style deal for it where they sign him and loan him back to Dortmund for the season um, just to get him secure because there's going to be plenty of competition for him next yeah. year. And I think that, you know, if you can get you Bellingham in there, um, I mean, I'll probably go, we'll listen to this in 12 months. We'll probably be at Man City. <laughs> you know, if you get him in there, there's your engine room for potentially the next 10 years, isn't it? And I, you know, so... It's um it's interesting. It Liverpool don't get a lot wrong on the transfer front, and um you know I, th- I think you know with this lad will will be in the right place to develop. Nico Williams, by the way, that Steve mentioned there is being linked with a move to Nottingham Forest on loan at the moment, and Forest in desperate need of new bodies with a load of the players that got them promoted last season leaving or going their loans finishing because there was a heavy loan contingent in that Forest squad. Let's talk about West Ham, Nile, because. Very close, might have already happened by the time you listen to this podcast, to signing Neafor Guard from Wren. 30 million quid for a centre-back, expected to be announced today. I think the medical's all been done. They've just been waiting for the weekend to be over to announce the deal. Decent start to West Ham in terms of transfer business. We know that David Moyes likes a strong defensive base. It gives him four strong centre-back options. Ogbunga, Zuma, Dawson. So... A reasonable start for West Ham fans to be happy with, I'd say. Yeah, I think that when you sign a player and you've had a good season, there's always the optimism. There's always the promise around it. And, he, you know, he comes from um, the French League. He's been playing for Stade Rennes, uh, who have been doing pretty well, actually, in the last couple of seasons. They've almost come from nowhere to be one of the better teams in French Liga. I think they finished fourth last season. Um, they've got Bruno Genesio as their manager, who's um, a well-known European body. I remember... Uh, Phil Hudson, who's a Newcastle fan, who's been on our podcast a few times over the years, he said that he would have quite liked him to um, replace Steve Bruce uh, at one point. And obviously, Eddie Howe now, he's delighted with that. But he's he's a manager who certainly has done well. They've played in the uh, Europa Conference League last season as well, got knocked out 
um, by Leicester. So they're a decent team. And obviously to finish fourth in, in the French Liga, it's one of Europe's top five leagues. It's probably the fifth best. I think that's fair to say that. But um, to finish fourth in that division um, for a club like Rennes is, is decent going. Uh, you know, he's six foot two, a Moroccan international. So it sounds like someone who could be good foil to, to Dawson, who I think, by the way, has had a really good season last season. I think, you know, if we're talking about unsung heroes of the season, I think you'd probably agree, Jim, that, you know, some of his performances have been absolutely colossal mm. for West Ham. He's had two great seasons. And you, the, the trouble problem is with Craig Dawson is you are fearful he hasn't got another one of those seasons in him. It's like he's had two great ones, but it feels like he's been playing at a level above himself. Yeah, I mean, that's that's fair enough. But maybe it's just um, the David Moyes effect. Maybe he's just enjoying his football. Sometimes it just clicks for a player. Um, I know what you mean, though. He kind of had two good seasons. But I remember, I'm not saying these two players are in the same bracket, by the way, but I was talking to a mate about this over the weekend. And when Harry Kane first came into the, the, the Tottenham squad, and scored a load of goals and everyone said oh he's a half a season wonder he's a one season wonder then he did it again then he did it again he just kept doing it so I'm not saying that that Dawson um, will do that Uh, but it's certainly uh, something to think about that he's had two good seasons why what what is it that would make him not be good next season all of a sudden Um, Mm. you know Zuma's a good player obviously he's been kind of dogged by this um, animal abuse video uh, which I think has been resolved (laughs) yeah but um, yeah, I think I think that's been resolved now. Not not resolved, but certainly a conclusion's been been drawn about, about that that problem. So whether that in, in, means he'll be a better player next season, who knows? But he's a decent enough defender. He's good zoom, it, um, isn't he? Yeah, he's yeah, he is decent. A solid yeah. centre back. Yeah. And Og Bonner knows West Ham, and he's he's kind of uh, reliable enough as well. So there's your four centre halves, and I think that any sort of decent, solid Premier League team needs a good batch of centre-backs. I think it's so important. I think the difference between the Premier League and all the other leagues is not just the intensity, but it's also the quality of the forward players. I think that that's different gravy to La Liga and Serie A with no disrespect to those leagues. You know, you can go down as far as someone like Leicester, for instance, who finished ninth and they've got, you know, Lookman, who's a good player, Vardy, Madison, these sorts of players, you know, (laughs) they're dangerous players. Um, uh, and I think that that's the difference in the Premier League is that the forward players right throughout the division in general are very strong and cause defences problems. So I think this is good news for West Ham. 30 million quid is a very West Ham fee to to pay for a player who's 26 years of age um, from the French League. I, I don't see why it would have needed to be that expensive. But I guess, as I've said a few times on the podcast over the years, 30 million quid is now your your 10 million quid of five years ago, six years ago. That's just the way it's going now with the way the market's gone. You know, so maybe so maybe that's something to bear in mind. But I think West Ham fans should be positive about this. Give him a chance, see how he gets on. And hopefully the Hammers can have another good season. I think it'd be a good window for West Ham, Jim. I think they, they it has the potential to yeah. be a good window. So reportedly, there's money to spend. Yeah. I think David Moyes, as we've seen throughout his entire career as a football manager, is super reserved when it comes to spending money. And he doesn't like spending big fees unless he thinks players deserve it. And that was part of his undoing at Manchester United was he didn't want to spend huge amounts of money. He treats it like it's his cash. So he needs to be sure. And that's resulted previously in us being short of bodies. So there is a little bit of a step to get over there. But that 30 million quid transfer fee is West Ham's fourth most expensive transfer of all time, which kind of shows how conservative they are with their money. Because Sebela... Uh, Philippe Anderson and Kurzuma above him in yeah. terms of transfer fees, but I think it looks. Hasn't Al going to uh, Bayern Munich summer? Yeah, it? yeah. Still, there's rumoured they're injured. He's had a great season at Ajax, and yeah. he could be off to Bayern. What now. about Oxlade Chamberlain? Do you want him this season? Um, I don't know. I think there's probably better options for us available. Saying it's ten to fifteen million for him. I don't know. What's it? What's his? Uh, is he? Is he actually fit? And ready to play now? I don't know. <laughs> He's got a wedding to pay for. He as has well. got a wedding oh, yeah. to pay for. He's got He's me, too you know, busy with TikTokers. Yeah, yeah, congratulations to uh, Alex and uh, his future wife. And you know he proposed over the weekend, didn't yeah. he? So uh, yeah, best wishes to them. Okay, uh, let's talk about Manchester City <laughs> because Chelsea apparently have made Raheem Sterling their top summer transfer target. Fabrizio Romano, usually pretty reliable with this stuff, says they've had an opening bid of twenty-one million pound turned down. What do you do if you're Raheem Sterling, Niall? Because you've undoubtedly had a brilliant time at Manchester City, but it's felt, despite the fact he played 30 times last season, it's felt like he's become maybe on the periphery of Pep Guardiola's planning. 
I think you could say that for all Man City players. You know, he changes it <laughs> so true, often. Actually. He literally changes it all the time. Um, you know, the starting eleven. I think the thing is with Sterling is the season before the Euros, where he was brilliant for England, he even admitted himself it wasn't his best campaign. And I think even this season, you can argue it's not been his most prolific campaign. Um, the first two or three seasons under Pep, he was very good. I think the 17-18 season where City won the league, uh, I think he was probably their best player. And he scored over, I think he scored over 100 Premier League goals now, which isn't bad for someone who can't finish. So um, I definitely think that that this is a, a really interesting one. I think he works in Pep's system. I think he's a player that, that Guardiola can rely on. Um, but maybe his time at Manchester City is coming to an end. You know, remember when Arsenal signed Mesut Ozil from Real Madrid out of nowhere and everyone couldn't really believe that he was leaving. Maybe that's just a similar case here. Raheem Sterling's time at Manchester City, the chapter is coming to a close. I think City should try and keep him. I think it should table a new contract for him. But... um the fact that he's been linked with Chelsea also isn't a surprise. He's, he's a lad who grew up in London, um, in North London, actually. But in terms of who's the most successful and probably the biggest club in London that are most likely to win silverware. West Ham. I know it was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Optimistic yeah. as ever, Jim. In East London. <laughs> but, you know, it remains to be seen how Chelsea will do under this new ownership. We don't know what their budgets are like. We don't know. We, I have no idea. I think it's almost a clean yeah. slate for Chelsea. But, you know, you can't deny that They've won the Champions League in the last couple of seasons. They won multiple Premier Leagues. They always seem to go well in the cup competitions. They always seem to be in some final. Steve will know. Liverpool beat them twice in both cup finals this season. So they've also got a manager there in Thomas Tuchel who um, it seems to know what he's doing. There's no fear anymore of the sudden sack by Roman Abramovich because he's out of the picture now. So I think managers can maybe be a little bit more relaxed about their process and not, not panic into trying to force results, which can sometimes backfire. So... Uh, I think that if there was a London club, which you can definitely see Sterling playing for a London team at some point in his career, it might be now, it might be this summer. But if there was a London club he would he would play for, you'd think it probably would be Chelsea. I think they can offer the best package financially. I think they're the most likely to pick up silverware out of themselves, Spurs, Arsenal um, and West Ham. Uh, and so therefore I can understand why he's been linked. Uh, but we'll wait and see. I think there's, there's still a long way to go in this transfer windows, uh, you know, another month at least until you know most of the pre-seasons are in full swing. So um, I, think, I think it's an interesting one. Will he fit in at Chelsea? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't really know what the style of, of, of uh, Thomas Tuchel will be because uh, Lukaku's going back to Inter Milan, it looks like, on some sort of loan deal. Um, that's been an absolute disaster. Worst sign Lewandowski's ever. been, been rumoured as, as possibly going to Chelsea. So I really don't know. I mean, if Sterling goes there, what's the promise from Thomas Tuchel going to be? Is it going to be you'll play every game? It's got to be, is it, it going to be you'll play wide, you'll play through the middle to replace Lukaku? I've no, I've no idea. So, yeah, you'd imagine, Steve, it would be that he gets promised regular game time rather than a couple of games in, a couple of games out like yeah. you do get under Pep Guardiola sometimes. Yeah. I think he'd do well at, at Chelsea. I think it'd be a good move for him. It is a new era at Chelsea. There's a lot of players that, that have left Chelsea or are leaving Chelsea. Um, you know, we're talking about the absolute flop. You know, Romelu Lukaku, 100 million quid is, is unforgivable. But I think Aspilicueta is obviously off to Barcelona. Is he just trying to get that done? So I think Sterling will fancy going in there and making himself a real leader in that squad. And, you know, arguably fighting for the, the armband in there. I think if some, yeah. if Tuchel said to him, listen, you know, we need a, a winning mentality in here. You've won the lot. Well, he's not won the lot, but he's won a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. um, I think they'd say, you know, kind of, you know, get us to that next next stage, really. I'd stick the armband on him if he went to Chelsea. That's a really interesting point, because to be honest, I think Chelsea, if Aspilicueta does go, they'll need a new captain. You know, and they're obviously looking, I know that they've looked at your uh, midfielder Jim Declan Rice as well in the past and he always seems to be linked with the move to Chelsea but if they've lost um, Zuma who they sold to West Ham they've lost Christensen they've lost Aspilicueta Rudiger's gone to Real Madrid I mean Sterling would be a great signing but don't you think Chelsea needs centre-backs yeah, yeah. they need to sign some defenders desperately yeah definitely I mean there's a big rebuild to do at Chelsea as well isn't there and as you say the future's very unknown we don't know what kind of budgets they're going to have we don't know what the vision for the club from yeah. the new owners is going to be like it's a a lot of uncertainty at Stamford Bridge at the moment. Just returning to Raheem Sterling for a second, Steve. Yeah. I mean, Niall mentioned they should try and retain him, offer him a contract. I think City fans are kind of a little bit split, actually. Some of them see him as being really important to the plan. Others, I mean, I've been to City games where he has been absolutely hammered by the fans. There yeah. seems to be a portion that really don't rate him. But there are rumours as well that one of the reasons these potential 
rumours around a move have come out is that Raheem Sterling is demanding parity with Erling Haaland in terms of wages. So £400,000 a week or thereabouts in terms of wages on a new contract. Have City potentially made a little bit of a rod for their own backs? Yes. They've got a lot of players in that team that are going to now want big wages. And that's the problem, isn't it? And I think as as frustrating it is, and I've got reason for mentioning Liverpool here, is as frustrating as is, we've said to Mo Salah and Sadio Mane, you cannot have four hundred thousand mm. pounds a week. Ah, you know Mo is the top earner at the club at the minute. Um, sorry, Virgil Van Dijk is uh, on two hundred and twenty thousand pounds a week. That's the limit at Liverpool. No one is going to go higher than that. And I think that United did it with Alexis Sanchez. That kind of started the whole. You know, yeah. I mean, footballers are on outrageous wages anyway. You know, what do you think week. it is, though, Steve? What do, you, what do you reckon the reason it is? Because obviously they're competitive lads, and we know that Salah and Mane have been competitive with each other, yeah. you know, trying to be the best player mm. in the team and all of this stuff. But when you're on a significant amount of money, you know, hundreds of thousands a week, is it really going to make a difference to your lifestyle or the life you live? I think it's a status thing, mate. Fifty think, to four hundred. Do you think that's what it is? I think like, it's just down to status. I think biggest... I think it's a dressing room thing where yeah, you know ego. The, it's ego. You know, it's absolutely no one needs four hundred thousand pounds a week. Yeah, I mean, what I mean, the difference if it, from two hundred to four hundred is obviously double, but it, I don't think it will significantly change the outlook of your life. I agree. I don't still be think, able to afford everything exactly. You want. You'll still be able to have the cars, the holidays, the you know, yeah. the, the, all the trimmings that come with being a, a you know footballer will, will still be there. And I think that when you bring someone in on much bigger wages than your your current crop of stars, it's going to create disharmony. And there's no doubt about it that Erling Haaland is a fantastic striker, um, world class striker almost. In that, you know, um, but if you're a to- you know a top player at City, you know, like I don't, you know, I mean, De Bruyne is on about three fifty, isn't he? Something like that. Mm. Um, if you're, I don't know what Bernardo Silva's on, but even though I cannot stand Bernardo Silva, um, he had a good season, didn't <laughs> he? Last purely because he drank that cup of tea, was well, it? Was dis- very disrespectful, <laughs> and, you know. Um, but that, that's you know, being gone, that was a couple of seasons ago. Um, but you know, if you're him, who's had a, a fantastic season. Uh, and I, <laughs> to be, yeah, well, uh, if you're him who's had a fantastic season and let's let's have it right he has someone comes in it's like hold on a minute he's on double what I am it's going to create a yeah, bit, of, bit of a situation mm-hmm. and I think that you know Sterling asking for 400 grand a week or parity is probably him going well if I can get end up on 330, 340 a week he'd be happy with that and I think it's, it's mainly a posturing thing but I think Man City are but at that point where we're like, well, okay, you know, you might be able to get that elsewhere, so we would consider bids. I've seen that they'll do it for sixty million this season. Whether Chelsea have got the stomach to pay sixty million for Raheem Sterling this mm-hmm. season, I don't know. But do I think it'd be a good signing for all parties concerned? I think it would be. And like I say, I would stick the armband on him and I'd have him kind of, you know, as as a focal point in that team, really. But I think, um, yeah, it's just all part of the money thing in football, isn't it? And you know, it's it is getting out of control. And as 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 long as teams are paying agreeing to pay these huge amounts of money, it's it's gonna get even worse. There's a big gap between sixty million and the reported twenty one point five million that is currently on the table. Interesting times at Manchester City. You've got Jesus looking like he's on the way out, Sterling potentially moving, Zinchenko apparently Man City listening to offers for him. And although he's not a regular, he's been a great utility player for them. And Bernardo Silva as well, reportedly interested in a move away. So it'll be an interesting window this for Manchester City. And you'll keep up to date with all the latest on Football Social Daily. Where next? We turn our attention to Aston Villa, where Niall catches up with the Love of Paul McGrath podcast. That is on the way. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. So Aston Villa, one of the great 
British football clubs, European champions in the past and after a bit of a spell in the wilderness a few years ago, back in the Premier League and back in everyone's thinking, particularly with Steven Gerrard now, the manager there. The season's over, we're into the summer and uh, we're going to chat a little bit now about Aston Villa and what possibly could be in store for the club over the next 12 months or so. And joining us to do just that, we've got Neil from the brilliant For the Love of Paul McGrath podcast. How are you doing, Neil? I'm doing great. Thank you very much, Neil, for having me on. No problem at all. Now, I mentioned Steven Gerrard. There's naturally going to be a lot of interest in how he's doing as a manager. He obviously took over from Dean Smith, who we know is a lifelong Villa fan, but it felt like that had kind of run its course. Villa were in a spot of bother when Steven Gerrard came in. How's he been received by the supporters and how do you think that Villa have ended off the season since his arrival? Yeah, it's been, I think last season was very much a truncated season for Aston Villa. And you mentioned there that obviously the managerial change mid, well, not even midway through, I suppose a third of the way through the season was something that Villa fans didn't expect. Um, And even if you go back further than that, when the managerial change happened, you know, obviously there was the Jack Grealish saga. We had lots of COVID. Our preseason was messed up to say the least with games being cancelled and Oh, it was just uh, there was there was one game actually whereby Aston Villa more or less put out a tweet and said anyone want to play us tomorrow and selling <laughs> it that that's not a joke and then selling Natania then all all of a sudden and were in the UK and said yeah we'll go, we'll play you so it was uh, it was uh, that that's the kind of preseason we had because COVID just ruined it but when we got into the season proper. I think that there was a lot of upheaval. Obviously, we had a new, more or less uh, a new attacking impetus with Buendia, with Bailey, with, with Danny Ings. It never really gelled. They all got injured at one time or another. And then Dean Smith lost his job, as you say. And I think it was kind of, at the time, you said it kind of ran its course. I felt it was almost bordering on, you know, a bit harsh at the time. But obviously, Stephen Gerrard has come in, implemented a new style of play. And we haven't been... We haven't been um, great by any manner or means under Steven Gerrard, but what we've done is we've won games in batches, but we've also lost games in batches as well. And I think over the course of the off-season, what Steven Gerrard is going to have to do is going to have to learn how to draw those games that we've been losing against some teams that we probably should have beaten, the likes of Watford. I think that we should have at least gotten something out of, out of games against uh, Newcastle and so on last season, even though they were on their massive, triumphant charge up the league at the time. But overall, Steven Steven Gerrard has been very, very well received and I think that kind of pulling power and that kind of razzmatazz that he brings uh, to the club uh, can't really be measured and it's all about now him putting his stamp on the playing staff now that he has an off-season to do so. You say putting that stamp on the playing staff, what does that stamp look like for more neutral followers of the Premier League? Obviously you watch Villa week in, week out and you've said that you've won games in batches and then you've lost a few in a row. What is Steven Gerrard's blueprint? Is it hard to tell yet what his philosophy might be? Because as a player, he was an unbelievable player, but he's also got this relationship with Jurgen Klopp. He's spoken in press conferences before about how he likes Brendan Rodgers' ideas, but he's also played a majority of his football under Rafa Benitez, who's a very defensive coach. So in terms of what Steven Gerrard's style is and what some fans might expect from watching Villa next season, is there anything that you can kind of let us know about in in terms of how Villa might play? Yeah, so once again, this is in flux as well at the moment, considering we've lost Michael Beale, who is Steven Gerrard's right-hand man, and he's been replaced by Neil Mm. Critchley, who was... Michael Beale's right-hand man, and then Michael Beale was Neil Critchley. So it's very incestuous, almost, relationship <laughs> between all this managerial merry-go-round in the Liverpool under-23s and Liverpool youth setup specifically seems to be, everything seems to be coming from there. But to answer your initial question, Stephen Gerrard came in, and, and, and I think he wanted us to, uh, he wanted to immediately play with two tens and, and one striker, kind of narrow the field a small bit more, flatten our midfield, uh, should I say, as opposed to playing one central defensive midfielder, and two eights so he, he kind of flattened our midfield a small bit so to give them a small bit more autonomy in the early parts when we first came in against Brighton it looked very good you know it looked good in the first two or three games and then it started to get stale very very quickly and then what he did was he changed it up to play with two strikers he brought in Danny Ings and Ali Watkins they would be much maligned as they couldn't play together um, when, when Dean Smith was here they still had teething problems but then we had games like like Leeds, like Southampton, whereby we put up big scores, three and four goals in both of those games, and things started to look good again. So what happens, I think, with with the Steven Gerrard model is that he relied, I'm not going to say he relied, actually, that's the wrong word, but the, the quality of play within the team last season 
was affected by two particular roles. Number one was because he flattened out that midfield and played more straight across as opposed to playing in a kind of a diamond formation, um, that, that midfield three. We had no enforcer in front of the in front of the back four. It really exposed Mings and Kanza. And we can see, even if you go back and you look at the Spurs game, Harry Kane basically ate their lunch all day long and he gives them gave them nightmares. So that was one area. The second area was the likes of Philippe Coutinho obviously came in in, in uh, January. He had his very, very good games and he had games whereby teams were able to mark him out of it and he made him a small bit anonymous. And when he was anonymous at times, the, the team struggled because he was their outlet ball. So I think that the, it, in the coming season, what Steven Gerrard is going to want the, want the team to do is to, to kind of move away from expecting Philippe Coutinho to be the magic man. Grab the mantle a small a bit more. I think we will see maybe more midfielders come in already. We've had Bubakar Kamara come in. We've had Diego Carlos come in as a, a centre half. I think we'll see more midfield reinforcements. And I know we'll probably talk about this in a moment. And I think we might see an extra striker come in. And that will help help Steven Gerrard to 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 kind of um, mould, I think, his style. Because I think since he's come to the Premier League, he's realised he can't just rely on that two number 10s, those inverted wingers, that narrowing of the field um, tactic anymore because of the expansive nature of the Premier League. Well, let's talk about some of the signings then. Buendia, Bailey, Dina, uh, Ings, Chambers, just some of the names that have come in in recent seasons. But Coutinho was the big one and that's been turned from a loan into a permanent deal. You highlighted him a moment ago, Neil. Is that a signing that was almost nailed on to the point where the supporters are pretty happy with the fact that he's now committed permanently. Absolutely. You know, I'm not going to sit here and, and, and uh, malign the 30, the 30 year old Philippe Coutinho signing Faston Villa, because realistically speaking, there's an argument to be made that he is the big highest profile signing Aston Villa have ever made, you know, and that there, there is a a genuine argument. I know I've had this argument on Twitter and a lot of people that are of a a finer vintage than me would have said, (laughs) Oh no, Andy Gray, this, you know, other players that would have signed. And that's absolutely fine too. But I think in the modern era, Philippe Coutinho is the biggest name signing Aston Villa have made and once again that comes from the razzmatazz that, that Steven Gerrard brings and also you know you sign one or two players like that and next thing some more players come like Diego Carlos would not have been on Aston Villa's radar as being somebody that could come in and, and could be signed even though he doesn't have that international fame um, you know it, it's it's guys like Philippe Coutinho that get, get people actually noticing that you're, that you're alive as a club mm. and, and that has been really interesting um, he's played he's played you know the games he's played really well you just sit back and you look at him and you go oh my god if I had if I had 0.0005% of his ability I would be the best player on my on my local <laughs> team you know and you're just looking at him going the stuff he can do is just out of this world but then there are games whereby uh, like like namely against against Newcastle where the team didn't fire and they didn't fire because he didn't fire and he didn't fire because John Joe Shelby literally just hopped into his shorts with him and wouldn't let him move around the field and I think that's a bit of rustiness in Coutinho's part, point of view uh, not having played a lot of games over the last few seasons but um, you know as the season went on he he started having more good days than he did uh, anonymous days and uh, you know all he needs is all he needs is like uh, the tiniest bit of space and he can and he can make something happen so fantastic sign and really delighted with him yeah he's class and no doubt he'll form a big part of Steven Gerrard's plans for next season but who else could we see in terms of positions rather more than names Neil arriving at Villa Park this summer because you say Kamara's come in um, Carlos and Coutinho on a permanent I think is it Olsen the goalkeeper as well has has come in so there's been a few additions did I hear you earlier mention that maybe a new striker could be on the cards is that something fans want I think what will happen well if you name me a football club in the Premier League and you show <laughs> yeah. me their fans who don't want a new striker. Like that's you know always what? It's, <laughs> it's one of those things, isn't it? You go down the pub and you talk to your mates about what signings that their club wants and they always say, oh, we could do with a, a new striker and, a, and another midfield player. Mm. I mean, it doesn't matter if you've got the best squad in the world. It's like when you're in the championship, you ask any fan of any club, oh, I'd quite like to get to the playoffs this season. Yeah. Like Playoffs is everyone's target. Um, it, it, you're absolutely right. Every club would like a new striker. It's just the nature of the game. I, I, and I think, look, it's 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 more or less common knowledge as Stephen Gerrard and, and, and the club were courting maybe 
sniffing around Luis Suarez. Obviously, he hasn't signed anywhere mm. yet, and I think the the probably the club are still in on that transfer, making decisions that he he may not be option number one, but he may be option number two. Um, that in itself is a hornet's nest that I don't want to get into with regards to the fan base, but um, it's uh, that that it, there could be a striker. I think that I don't think we're going to go away and we're going to blow up 30, 40, 40 million on a striker. Villa will spend money between now and the start of the season, I think. They will continue to spend money, should I say. But I don't think the, the predominant amount will go on a, on a striker. I think we need to sign an extra left-back. Ashley Young has been released. Looks like we're going to sign him back. I personally am not a fan of Ashley Young being our only option behind Luca Dean at, at left-back. At 36 years of age, for a man who only started playing in that position four to five years ago, just for me, that doesn't sit well, and I think it's bad squad, squad building. So I think that a, a left back will come in there's been talks of um nonce Qu- quinton merlin i'm going i'm not going to do it in a, in a french accent although i have tried on my <laughs> podcast uh, and there's been talks of you know um uh, from from anderlecht uh, sergio gomez so i think left back will be something that if an opportunity arises they will strengthen there definitely another eight will come in through the door i, I just cannot see us going in with the the same midfield it's it was a big area of weakness for us last year um, and number eight come in. Maybe there will be number eights that will go out. Morgan Sanson will likely go out on loan. Um, and I think he will need to be replaced. I wouldn't be surprised to see someone like Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain come in there to, uh, you know, 20 games a season, 25 games a season, pick and choose his games. A passer of the ball, a religious passer of the ball almost um, is Oxlade-Chamberlain. That's something that gets forgotten in his game. Um, but obviously not somebody that whose body can stand up to 38 games a season. So there's going to be conversations around that. But definitely a number eight. Um, I think a striker and and a left back I think would be the the priority positions for uh, for Steven Gerrard between now and when we jet off to Australia, which I think is something like the fourth of July. So it's fourteenth last campaign. Neil finished below Brentford and Crystal Palace and Newcastle as well, who as you've mentioned before had that mini resurgence under under Eddie Howe. What are the plans for next season from a supporter perspective? What are the expectations for Aston Villa are you eyeing a top 10 spot this time around well it's like the championship everybody thinks that they can I think every team between probably 14th and 8th <laughs> thinks that they can sneak that Europa Conference uh, position because yes. yeah. nobody's really nailed it down and if anybody has they've only nailed it down for a year the likes of Wolves Leicester West Ham you know they, they've They've shared that position and I don't think any of them are massively unbeatable. But once you start looking above that to the likes of Spurs, to the likes of United, all those and then onwards up the league, I think that becomes a small bit, small bit less attainable. I would be happy anywhere from ninth to seventh, I think. And I think Steven Gerrard needs to like 14th was, was it was a kick, a kick in the face for him last season. It, we shouldn't have finished 14th. There were some games whereby we should have won those games or we shouldn't have lost them, I suppose, really. And I think that that's... Like, there was times where, where people were asking, what, like, where's the club going here? You know, we're losing three in a row. We're winning two in a row. We're losing three in a row. And there was no draws going in there. So I think, I think the fan base would be happy. The fan base would be expecting to get into the Europa Conference. Uh, and and I think they should do that because I do think that there's a couple of more shoes to drop with regards to signings and and people coming in. Um, but I think that I think that really progression, finishing ninth uh, and above for me would be would be where I realistically expect us to finish. Yeah, I think it's a really good point actually. Let's say that Suarez does pitch up at Villa Park, then you know there's an added incentive for the club to try and finish in one of those European spots next season. I think it's a great point that you make. Now, people will have picked up by now, Neil, that you're an Irishman. So too was Paul McGrath. Your podcast is called For the Love of Paul McGrath. It's part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. I presume that there's some sort of connection there that made you a Villa fan, or am I completely uh, barking up the wrong tree here? You're 100% right. There is a, uh, an old adage or an old story, should I say, that uh, that is true. Um, when I was really young, um, the f- I wasn't really into football, but um, myself and my dad were watching a football match one day and uh, Paul McGrath was playing for Ireland and because of his ethnicity and the only he was the only, uh, I suppose, non-white man on the team, I just couldn't, I was drawn to him and I said, wow, this guy's, and he was really good, you know, I was maybe seven years of age and I said, God, who's this guy? And then all of a sudden, uh, that was on a Wednesday and then the Saturday afterwards here in Ireland on ter- terrestrial TV, we used to get a three o'clock kickoff. 
uh, free to air here in Ireland back then. It was fantastic. They, they were the glory days. They were the real glory <laughs> days when you used to get free free games. And I think it was Villa versus Crystal Palace. And lo and behold, my man Paul McGrath was playing for Aston Villa again. And it was just serendipitous in that way that I'd seen yeah. him play for Ireland. Um, and then literally days later, he played for played for Aston Villa uh, against Crystal Palace, and that game happened to be on TV. So all for free to air terrestrial, only for free to air terrestrial TV. I probably would have been something like a Liverpool fan, and I wouldn't <laughs> have got to know the beauty of Aston Villa, and more so the beauty of the world's greatest ever defender, Paul McGrath. Yeah, great stuff. If you are a Villa fan and you don't know about the podcast yet, then what have you been doing? Loads of content to get your ears around for the Love of Paul McGrath podcast. Go and check it out on the Sports Social Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Neil, pleasure to talk to you, mate. Really appreciate your time. And likewise, Niall, thank you so much for having me on. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode.